Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to have our friend of the podcast with us, Dick Foth, on another session of Back Channel with Foth. And then we're going to jump into our interview with Richard Langer on A Call to Follow. Dick, welcome back to the podcast. You know, whenever I'm on with you, it my brain and heart. So this is a totally selfish deal. Good to see you. <laughs> Well, I'm glad. I'm glad that I'm glad you enjoy spending time with us. So, Dick, got one one question for you here today. Um, what are three key points or actions that a person can take if they desire to be the best follower that a leader can have? I might have one more than three. I might have four, but the but the baseline is this: Jesus did not call me to be a leader. Jesus said two words, follow me. Yeah. And years ago, I had a friend who was in the um, cabinet of the president of the United States, ran a big department. And I said to him, you know, what does it feel like or what's it like to lead so many people, 150 or something? And he said, well, it's a, it's a challenge. But his comment was, you know, I, I know that we're called leaders, but everybody follows somebody. Everyone follows someone. So when we talk about being a follower, we're, that's like that's like saying, how does it feel to be human? You know, it's, yeah. it's in that category. Sure. Is what yeah. I'm saying. And if I'm going to be, if, if, if I'm going to follow Aaron Santmar, okay, I need to understand, I need to understand what you value. Okay. And I need to understand what drives you. Not all leaders are driven, but my experience is a high percentage are. Yeah, that's true. And in the, in the best sense, you know, lots of leaders get up and say, you know, I want to make it better, whatever it is. Right. So to understand what that leader values and what drives them in order to do that, and you you would expect this from me, you need to burrow in to that leader's story hmm. so that so that, you know say tell me tell me about your people, yeah, where were you born and brought up, but where did your parents come how did they meet what what about your grandparents both sides you know any of that? Give me yeah. that because because those values tend to be distilled, I think hmm. over generations. Yeah, I know a number of leaders in faith-based things or missions and so forth who came from horrific backgrounds, okay. but they, because of a moment in time, by the grace of God, broke the cycle of that. Other people come from generations of faith, right? Yeah. So uh, I would I would say the key thing to being a really helpful follower is to really understand the leader by burrowing into their story. And the the other side of that is you will learn most as a follower by being willing to carry bags, hmm. serve in any way you can. Hmm. Um, people, uh, my close friends and family laugh at me sometimes because whether it was back in Illinois or whether it was when I was president of small college or whether I was in DC for 15 years or now, I always like 
doing the airport runs to pick people up when they're coming in to speak. Some people okay. say, well, it's just a pain. I'll send, you know, Joe over there because he's, yeah. he's on the pecking order. But my experience is I think I've probably earned a couple of PhDs yeah. doing airport runs and having those conversations to and fro. That's good. You know, that's that. So be willing to carry bags and serve in any way. Yeah. And that frees up the person you're following yeah. to be able to do the other things that they're that they're called to do. Yeah. Good word. Good word. And so, Dick, the, the idea of being willing to carry bags, is that is that just developing humility? Um, what's your thoughts on that? I think. I think that we never we never get beyond carrying bags. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that 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 if I, it, it is an it's it's an extension of what it means to serve. Yeah. What can I do yeah. to help you? What can I do to make your time here more comfortable? Sure. What can I do to move the ball down the field in yeah. terms of mission? Yeah. And we we live in a culture and it's the it's the human condition is that we pay attention to the lead dog. Yeah. One of the things I learned in D.C. and others of my friends have taught me is that when you're meeting somebody in a place of power, what you really need to do is make friends with their administrative assistant hmm. because that person understands the person that person um has in themselves a tremendous amount of value. Yeah. They know how to serve, they know what's important in that context. And so I think in a in a culture that's or in a world that's fixated on celebrity a lot of times. Yeah. Because they quote have the power, the audience, the followers, whatever it is, that business of being willing to do uh, anything to serve to be of yeah. help and finding joy in it. Um, that's a, that's a huge deal. Good stuff. Good stuff. Dick, always enjoy spending time with you on back channel with Philip. We're going to go ahead and jump into our interview with Richard Langer on a call to follow. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. Excited to be here with a new friend today. I've been looking forward to this conversation since ever since I finished his book and my friend Jeffrey recommended it. Um, Rick Langer. Rick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be with you guys. For sure. Rick, will you go ahead and just share a little bit about yourself um, for the audience before we jump into some of your questions and on your book, The Call to Follow? Sure. I was a, a pastor. I... I just after college, I went overseas as a missionary to Campus Crusade for Christ. So I was in Guam and India for about a year and a half. And then I came back, went to seminary, was a pastor for about 20 years in uh, Southern California. And then the last 18 years, I've been a professor at uh, Biola University, um, where my kind of my niche has been the integration of faith and learning, because we have all kind, you know, I 46 different majors or whatever the number sure. is. And so the question is, how does the Christian faith actually intersect with all these things? So that's what hmm. I've been doing for the last 18 years. Wow. So what does what does that look like? The, the intersection of faith and learning? What what does what's does every day look like for Rick? Well, so for me, you can imagine with 
you know, 46 majors sure. and 200 and some odd professors that I spend a lot of time talking to people. So I may talk to a person in the business uh, realm. I actually have an appointment with someone who's a math professor okay. later today, a uh, chemistry professor sure. later in the week. Uh, and really what we sit down and do is try and think not a lot of times the way we do integration is try and stick it in hmm. like by having a devotional before a class yeah, or, you know, some other throwing a Bible verse. And, and really what you're telling people is Jesus doesn't have anything to do with math or chemistry or business, <laughs> but we're a Christian university. So we'll have a Bible study and sure. then we'll go do math or business or yeah. And what we're trying to say is, you know, your faith ought to shape absolutely everything you do. Yeah. I think there's no question there's some things that you have a more kind of robust conversation between sure. faith and a discipline. Right. But at the same time, you know, if, if everything was truly made not only by Christ, but for Christ, well, yeah. then there ought to be something to say. So hey, that's what amen. I spend a lot of time either in groups or individually with faculty talking about things like that. Amazing. Amazing. So Rick, you wrote a book, um, The Call to Follow, and you tackled the subject of followership. What led you to to write a book and to tackle this subject? As you say, you know, there's lots of leadership podcasts, there's lots of books on on leadership, probably not, not as many books on following. Yeah. So what, what led you to, to write this book and tackle the subject? Yeah. So part of it was a bunch of informal conversations with Joanne Jung, my kind of across the hall sure. uh, office, uh, you know, compadre here at uh, at Biola. And we had talked about some of this casually, but over the course of years, we began to kind of talk about it more, more thoughtfully. And the other thing is we began to see things. Once you get an idea in your head, you suddenly see it everywhere. Yeah. And that, I think, is a big part of what began to happen where I was looking at some of these things and going, man, we have some real problems with how we think and talk about leadership. I, I think the bottom line is I felt like we were not thinking about either leadership or what it means to be a follower in a biblical fashion. Hmm. We talked about a lot of these things, but we we were just profoundly shaped by our culture in terms of what we expected a leader to be, what we expected a follower to be, how we should view them, what we should aspire to. All those things just seemed off the rails in the wrong direction. Uh, wow. And so that was what got us going on, on wow. the project. Wow. You know, as you delve in, I got into the book, it began to... I began to think like, what, what is it in, in my upbringing or in life or culture that following became such a maybe non-desirous? And so you do, and I don't know, I'm, I'm throwing a question at you, but so I, my son and I were having dinner tonight and I said, you know, I don't know if it is, as a young, a younger kid, your parents tell you, Hey, don't follow, be the leader. Don't follow the crowd. Yeah. Don't follow that. Do you think that plays some into it? Or is that just a West Virginian trying to uh, think about his past? <laughs> try to pop process your like psychic pain through the years um so i do think it is a cultural mm. issue that is profoundly significant there's some of this that you might say look in the garden mm. 
part of what Adam did was decided, hey, this whole following gig isn't really cut out for me. I want to be sure. the person who knows what's good and evil. I don't want to follow yeah. good and evil instructions. I want to be the guy who knows. So you can look at this, and, and I think that's fair. I, I think sure. there is a kind of pervasive human current that goes that way. So sure. yeah, fair enough. But that's insufficient to account for how Americans, at hmm. least, and Western European, I, I, I'll i confine myself to the American context because sure. that's what I know best. Yeah. But my experience more broadly says it isn't just America, but we happen right. to have it kind of in excess beyond most others. Yeah. Um. So I think there's kind of a combination of things that have happened. One of them I was reading, a friend of mine gave me a book that was written in 19, well, late 1800s or maybe right around 1900. And it was a book on leadership. And he was a, kind of a leadership guy or whatever. He found this at a, I don't know where he found it, if it was at a used bookstore or whatever, but he thought, hey, I should give this to Rick. It looked kind of cool. So he gives it to me. And I have, I mean, I'm just I, like you and probably everybody else listening to the podcast. You have a bunch of leadership books that you've gotten over the years and, they, you know, you've got a chunk on your shelf that has it. Well, I began looking at this. The names of the chapters were things like um, faithfulness, hmm. humility kindness it was a list of virtues and the whole essence of this and it was a thick book i mean 400 pages probably wow kind of written like devotionals but they were all about character issues and some of the ones that you might think that we would think of with leadership you know industry or courage or things like that they were definitely included but they were among this huge long list of what you would normally call human virtues. And you could mm. see in the mindset in America at that time, if you looked at successor leadership uh, literature, it was all born around the notion the way to become a success, the way to become a leader is by cultivating human virtue. Wow. And you fast forward that a hundred years and I'm sitting around looking at these leadership books and they're say, Express your true, self, your true self, you know, be a person who launches your wagon to the stars and others will follow <laughs> behind you. Um, and I'm like, there's no, I mean, I would, I could read a dozen leadership books, Aaron, and not find a single chapter on an ordinary virtue like humility or wow. empathy or things like that. Yeah. We just, it is, I, I kind of call it radical self-expressive individualism. Wow. So we disdain anything that confines us, anything that restricts us. I don't know what the deal is with this phrase, don't let anybody define you. Mm. I mean, I'm like, I don't even know how I define So What does it mean to define a human being? That's not really a thing you do to a human being. Um, does it mean you don't want any expectations placed on you by anybody else? And I'm like, well, wow, that sounds like a crazy way to live. Yeah, I mean, that sure. sounds a unrealistic, but me just genuinely undesirable. Yeah, I like having people have certain expectations of me. I like fulfilling them. It's nice to be needed. It's nice to be appreciated. I don't know, sue me, <laughs> but I, I'm kind of in favor of all those things. Yeah, for sure. And so the idea that we we have this, and I don't know if it, you know, Disney, I don't think created it. They express it all the time in the cartoons they do. But I'm sure that they are marketing to what sells more than they woke up sometime in 1948 and decided, let's create a whole culture of people who are just radical, self-expressive individualists. You know, I, yeah. I don't think it works that way. Yeah. But they pick up on the current and then, you know, amplify it. Yeah, for so sure. So that's part of what, and so anything that smacks of submission, 
Um, and it isn't just like male female submission that we sometimes talk about with with gender roles or things like that. Just submitting to anything. And part of this is commands. If if God gives a command, do I really need to submit? Said, well, why did God give that command? Let's negotiate this, Lord. And I'm like, wow, that's not really what I think of when I think of a command. I mean, you're yeah. kind of supposed to do it, right? Yeah, yeah. But we don't like those things. Um, we don't like even our own nature. If our nature tells us we are male or female, we want to say not so much. Mm. Uh, we don't, we resent those kinds of givens in modern wow. America. Wow. And I think it's all part of a, a big pervasive culture of doing sure. this. So that makes following really, if you have any sense that following includes deference to a leader, submission to someone who's giving direction or to a broader organizational mission than what your personal preferences might give you, followership yeah. kind of goes out the window. So yeah. that's that to um, me is kind of the cultural waters we swim in and the problems that it creates. Yeah, no, I appreciate it very, very much. And you you talk in the, you're sharing the book, you don't talk, you, you write in the book about looking at followers through the lens of making leaders successful. And how does that, how does that looking through that lens, how does that impact the idea of followership? When we look at followership to make leaders successful, that's the goal. Could you just share a little bit about that? Yes. So the way I'd think about it is followership is to make an organization successful or a okay. achieve a mission, sure. so to speak. Right. And, and the way you do that is submitting to a leader who's appointed to do that, right. who's submitted to a board, who's submitted to their mission that's submitted to the Lord, right? And right. that's part of the point of this whole thing is view yourself, view everybody is linked in a great chain of followership that stretches from wherever you are all the way back, not only through your organization, but all the way back through all of the apostles who preceded us, all the way back to Jesus, who, as I point out in the book, weirdly enough, most vividly models for us followership, yeah, not leadership, Jesus himself. Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm referring to the incarnate Jesus, not the <laughs> eternal second person of the Trinity. But you read the book of John, and he is constantly framing himself as not the one. I didn't send myself. I was sent. It isn't my teaching. It's the teaching that I've heard. I don't give you my commands. I give you the Father's commands. I don't, uh, you know, it, these aren't my sheep. These are the sheep that were given me. Hmm. Um, I'm just like, not my will, but thy will be done. You think of all these sayings that we have. Yeah. I mean, I'm not telling you things you've never heard, right? Right. It just, we've never stopped to think, oh, dang. Yeah, every one of those things would be characteristic of the follower, not the leader in a situation. I'm delivering mm. the message, not writing the message. And it's like, that's what he seemed to model. And then the action point is, hey, if I'm the guy who washed your feet, you go do likewise. Mm. And in effect, he's saying, if I modeled followership to you, for heaven's sake, literally, yeah. I expect you to imitate by being yeah. a follower. Yeah. Yeah, that's and leadership might come because God points to you and says, I want you to lead. Okay, great. Then then my my leadership has officially been thrust upon me by my followership. Hmm. But the the bedrock, the foundation is is a foundation of following. Wow. And so from a biblical perspective, what I hear you saying is there's there's as much there in Jesus's life with followership as there is leadership. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and oftentimes even more. I so I don't want to overplay the card because there's a ton of stuff that's sure. about leadership that's really important. Right. But one of the things back to the things that God is going about writing the book, 
I was chatting with Joanne, uh, you know, back to our hallway conversations, and she mentioned this uh, person that she had just talked to on the phone or something who was, I think he was a Christian who was in the Army Corps of Engineers or something like that. So very high up, you know, I had, I probably, had, I think he literally might have had like 30,000 people who reported oh, wow. to him, you know, some okay. kind of sure. thing like that. But anyhow, yeah. he knows a little bit about leadership, sure. but he made the comment that servant leadership isn't actually a biblical phrase hmm. or concept. Hmm. Now, I disagree a little bit about it not being a biblical concept, yeah. but the jarring thing to me was I thought, well, what about like, you know, the all of the, so there's a whole cascade in the Synoptic Gospels of kind of right before the final events in the upper room, you have James and, uh, you know, John showing up, we want to sit at your right sure. hand and left hand, and Jesus has this whole discourse about, don't play the Gentile lord it over you game. Yeah. You know, I want you to do the thing like me. And then here's the crazy thing. We read it as if Jesus said, I want you to be servant leaders, not Gentile like authoritarian leaders. Hmm. But read the passage. He says, I want you to be a servant, period. <laughs> I want you to serve everybody. In case you're confused about what that looks like, let me go wash everybody's feet. And give you an example of like the lowest slave task that you could imagine. That's the mindset I want you to have. And I just realized for, for 50, 60 years of my life, yeah, I had read that passage as if it literally had the words, be a servant leader. Hmm. And it hmm. literally doesn't. It's actually a passage rejecting leadership and telling you to embrace being a servant. Wow. That's now, good. that doesn't mean that there's nothing in the Bible about leadership, like I say. Right. And actually, I think the phrase servant leadership, I want to be clear about this. I think there's what what you might call servant leadership, shepherd leadership, and steward leadership okay. are all kind of three aspects of pretty much the same thing, which I really do think are legitimate biblical models of leadership. Sure. Just the squirrely thing is the place I always thought I was getting it from <laughs> is exactly not where it's located. So. There you go. Autobiography there. Not proud of it, but there you go. Wow. Crazy, crazy. So one of the other things I just found interesting, I've been talking to my friend Jeffrey about it, is this idea that we have the wrong idea that followers are basically deficient leaders or those who lack intelligence and wisdom um, to be a leader. So they just become a follower. Um, can you can you unpack that thought process and where the deficiencies are in that yeah, so that that's actually a really good question to really kind of stop and think think about. So I appreciate you asking that. So the first thing I want to say is that partly of this is born of a complete lack of imagination for followership actually being a thing, mm. so to speak. Yeah, it's not something; it's an absence. We think of it as a shadow, not a object. Sure. Um, so that problem becomes easiest way for me to illustrate that is that you could think about this was something like uh, practicing Sabbath rest. Okay. Um, so you could view Sabbath as simply not doing anything. Hmm. Well, if that's your view of a Sabbath rest, then yes, A, any idiot could do it. B, there's no skills associated with it. You just don't do anything. Right. Um, but if, on the other hand, you're saying, oh, no, 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 you don't understand Sabbath right. Sabbath is a time for uh, dedicated to, on the one hand, worship, but also kind of restoration, renewal of a soul. It's a time where a 
person reminds themselves that they're more than what they do, not less hmm. than what they do or merely what they do. It's a time that we gather together and simply enjoy the goodness of creation. It's a time we actually actively imitate God who rested after six days of created action. Sure. So you suddenly realize, oh, Sabbath is a thing. Right. It's a project. And then you think of all the times you've done nothing and ask yourself, did I find it restorative to myself? Did I deepen my worship of God? Did I unite with other people? Did I have a sense that I'm worthy in and of myself without having to do? Did any of those things pass through your mind? If the answer right. is no, then I'm saying, okay, you were unsuccessful at Sabbathing. You know, it's <laughs> not a crime. I just want you to know right. it is something that you can do well or poorly. And that's exactly what I mean about leadership or mm. it, well, followership. Sure. That it is something. And as long as we think of it as nothing, hmm. well, then, then yeah, you're right. It is the thing that the failed leader is. They just have to go along. But right. if we view followership, number one is the first call of every Christian disciple. So part of what we do when we follow is exactly to obey and honor God hmm. and also follow the example of Jesus. So if Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, if part of what Christ did was model followership, well, we better wake up in the morning and say, dang, how can I model followership? I better figure this out because Jesus did it. I better do it. Right. So, you know, there's that whole component. The other thing we talk about in the book is kind of three qualities that we would expect good followership to be marked by. Okay. So part of that really is just deference to a leader. It really does mean that you have a leader that you honor, that you respect, and that the normal process, and perhaps even if you don't completely respect them or appreciate them, if they're not the best leader, you're saying, nonetheless, my default mode relative to this person is to follow, to do what I'm directed to do, to do it with excellence, to do it with zeal. I, I am basically bringing to the table on a daily basis in the absence of some exceptional circumstance, an attitude of deference and commitment to serve the requests of the leader that I'm working with. Hmm. There, there you go. And yeah. if it isn't always happy, my first thought with that is that this is probably an exercise in forming my soul that has been appointed for me. So I should probably lean in instead of lean away. Wow. Now that with that penny dropping, then there's a couple other things to think about. One is to bring zeal to the job, hmm. not passivity. So the idea that a follower should be passive, I'm like, I have no idea where that one comes from. But, okay. you know, you look at the disciples, they did all kinds of things wrong, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that for sure happened. But the passivity thing isn't really, I mean, Peter's like anti-passive. He could use yeah. a little passivity a few times, right? <laughs> and a lot of the other disciples who did, I mean, James and John, hey, they took the initiative and you're sure. just like, oh boy. Yeah. Um, so these are things that that wasn't characteristic. And Paul talks about using your gifts with zeal. Hmm. And he names gifts like showing mercy and being a servant. Hmm. So he's certainly thinking zeal should travel with all with everything. We just yeah. we do it with our whole heart. We do it with the spirit infusing our spirit to honor the spirit. Uh, yeah. So that's the kind of you know mindset I would hope that we would naturally could naturally associate with being a follower. And then the final thing is a profound sense of mission ownership hmm. that you look at the mission, you understand the mission. In fact. Part of why you are where you are is because you're committed to the mission of the organization or entity that you're a part of. And let me point out that all of us have multiple callings at any given time. So we have okay. a job situation. 
we have a family calling, we usually have a church calling, we have a community calling, we have a citizenship, all of those things, some of them freely chosen, your family connections in one sense are thrust upon you, you may have chosen a spouse, by the way, in our world, most people actually don't, right? I mean, arranged yeah. marriages are still the norm. Sure. Uh, we Americans don't think that way, but you know, for most of the world, a lot of these things are actually things that are givens, hmm. not chosen. But in all of those areas, you know, we we have stuff that is legitimately a calling from God that we need to figure out how to make the most of. Yeah. And so we want to we want to figure out our mission. Why did God give me this situation? How do I maximize it? We bring that to everything we do as a follower. And wow. so you need to own the mission. And I, I we were chatting earlier about, you know, coming coming to Africa and climbing yeah. uh, Mount Kilimanjaro. Yeah. Well, if I came to Africa, I, I'm not going to go do that on my own. I'm going to be, a, my plan is to be a follower if I go <laughs> climb Mount Kilimanjaro, okay? I'm just not going to say, hey, big mountain, let me go climb it. That's like a terrible idea. Yeah. But on the other hand, this follower mindset, if I show up with the guide that we contact and say, okay, Rick, here's your scuba outfit. Yeah. Um, and here's your snorkel and mast, and you, you'll just you'll marvel at the beauty of all the fish that occupy the coastal areas of of uh, eastern Africa. And I'm like, I'm not here for the fish. Right. Yeah, I'm here to climb a mountain. I don't think I need scuba gear. Whatever else sure. I need on Mount Kilimanjaro, right? I don't need scuba gear. So yeah. you just realize, ah, no, you are not the guide I'm supposed to be following. Hmm. And this is the thing, you know, we talk about followers as sheep in a disparaging hmm. way, which I, I kind of get, but I do want to say, hey, look, the Bible does use sheep as a model of followers, number one. Number two, when Paul or when Jesus talks about the sheep, he's saying these sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd. Yeah. And they don't follow any clown who shows up. They don't follow some brigand who climbed over the gate and says, hey, sheep, come follow me. They're like, I'm having nothing to do with you, buddy. Sure. I know who I'm following. And if you start taking me a place that's incompatible with following Christ, I'm not going there. Hmm. I'm not going there. Hmm. So you have a huge realm in which you exercise deference to the leader, but your clarity of the mission vision is exactly what helps hold both the leader accountable and then yourself, or you don't get to just say, hey, my commander told me to do this, yeah. but, you know, I'm, I I think of things like the Nuremberg trials, where you had hmm. a lot of German soldiers doing things that were viewed as crimes against humanity, but they were indeed commanded to have done them. And that's yeah. something, guys, you've departed from mission, and you can't do that. Yeah. Followers own, understand, and implement the mission actively, every day. Um, sure. It, it should be a good well, could you repeat those three things that you said for kind of every follower should should have? One, I think the first one was deference yeah. and submission, and then... Yeah, deference and submission to the leader, a, a zeal and enthusiasm for the task. Think okay. of a follower as all-in, self-starter, fully engaged, I'm in. Good way, easy way to think about this is like on a football team. You have a coach who, in a sense, is your leader. But are you thinking that the coach is saying, yeah, kind of go out and play middle linebacker if you want to, but <laughs> give one for the old boys, yeah, you know? Right. He's he's thinking you are leaving it on the field every play. Well, yeah. that's Christian zeal. Hmm. And you want to do that for whatever ministry opportunity, every situation, all in, all the time. So yeah. bring bring a sense of deference to your leader, a sense of zeal to your task, and a clarity of the ownership of the mission. 
that you understand the mission so that you can make wise choices that augment the mission, that improve the things that you're doing. And then most of all, or perhaps not necessarily most of all, but one of the most important things we do is actually knowing the mission well enough to give mission feedback back up the line. When mm. we aren't doing the things that need to be done, we need to be the people who speak up. Because a lot of times, you think of a general on a battlefield, he doesn't know what's going on in every place. And if there's yeah. something unexpected happening or the, the strategy isn't working, he needs to know. Hmm. And and sometimes there may be nothing that can be done about it. But I would hate for the guys to say, well, we're getting We're going to go in there. And we're going to get shot because you got all these machine guns we didn't know we had. But he said go. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, how about a little... How about a little feedback on how sure. this is? Yeah. And of course, the leader needs to be receptive to that, but the follower needs to give it. And that can break down in either way. But point is, it ought to be both. Yeah. And so what I hear you saying, it's it's to be a follower is anything but being passive. It's it's There's activity. It takes wisdom. It takes intelligence. And those ideas that followers are not. And maybe that you hit, maybe touched on it there with the idea of sheep. We think followers are sheep. You know, they fall, you know, they just passively follow one or the other. They go yeah. off cliffs. You hear those, your stories like that frequently. And and I think those are true. Um, at the same time, what I hear you say is there is a lot of thought. It, there is a lot of wisdom. And just if you're, if you're following, it doesn't mean that you're somehow deficient, but rather you're walking in the gifting that God has given you in that at that time and season in your life. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Yes. And, and the one other thing I would add is that for most, all basically everybody is both a follower and a leader at the same time. You think of all these different tasks that you have, sure. you know, your different callings. In some of those settings, you're probably a leader. Others, you're probably a follower. And for most of us, even in a setting where you might be the leader, you also spend a lot of time being the follower. So like yeah. in an organization or a job, I have meetings I walk into where I'm the leader. Yeah. I have meetings that I walk into where I'm a follower. I have both yeah. an upward and a downward kind of reporting chain. And that includes the president of, of almost any organization. You report to a board in a sense. Yeah. You have an upward accountability structure. You have a downward. You're sometimes, you know, the the follower implementer. You're sometimes the, the leader creator. And if we only have a vision for leadership being done well and think of followership as a nothing and that it can't be done either well or poorly, it just isn't done at all. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is if everybody's both a leader and a follower, then you're really saying half of my job I might do well, the other half I'm not even going to try. I'm not even going <laughs> to think about how to follow. And I'm like, how about if we improve our odds here a little bit? How about if you own both and do your best? Yeah, so yeah, for sure, that's the other part of this thing that becomes really problematic with that mindset is you begin to forget how often you're both follower and leader. Yeah, that's good. So in the chapter one, crisis of followership, um, you mentioned that both leaders and followers are responsible to value faithfulness over success. Can you unpack that a little bit, that idea of valuing faithfulness over success and the importance for both the follower and the leader to take that responsibility? Yeah. Um, so let me do that in two words, Jeremiah and Isaiah. Okay. <laughs> so you you look at Jeremiah and, and actually, and I could add a whole bunch of other people too, but those are because they're such big parts of the Bible. I figure they're sure. handy. Yeah. Uh, two of the biggest books <laughs> of the Bible are basically stories of people whose faithfulness was exactly unsuccessful. 
Hmm. So Jeremiah faithfully proclaims to Israel a message that they need to repent or else they'll be judged by the Babylonians. So he is sent off on this proclamation of repentance. God actually tells him ahead of time, Jeremiah only half accepts it because half the book is him complaining about the fact that nobody pays any attention to me, Lord. I, I say <laughs> this and then they throw me in the bottom of a well and it, this is not working, you know? So yeah. he is on a autobiographical self-reporting existential crisis of faithfulness without success. And he is articulate about it. He talks to God about this. God seems wildly unmoved. And his request for Jeremiah is, Jeremiah, I would like you to be faithful. Success, he's like, Jeremiah, I'm sorry that you were born in 6, you know, 30 BC or whenever he was born. You know, I'm sorry you're born at the back end of 300 years of sin. But the bottom line is you're accountable to me and your people, your covenant people. And at this point, they are heading into judgment. And I want them to go with a clear sense of my warning, my concern, my call for, for plea for repentance. I want them when this happens to have that ringing in their ears, that this is not a thing that happened because God abandoned them, but rather because you have unrelentingly abandoned God. So wow. Jeremiah, that's what I've appointed you to do. If you're hoping for success, you need to apply for a different job. Um, <laughs> and Isaiah pretty much gets the same thing. You know, he, he, Isaiah, dumb move, man. He, he signs up for the job without reading the job description. You know, who will I send? Who will go for it? Oh, send me. And it's like, yeah. oh, great. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go preach to these people, and they're never going to hear, and they aren't going to see. And then and then Isaiah's like, uh, how long do you want me to do this? Yeah. He says, oh, until the tree is chopped down to just the stump, and then the stump gets burned. That's how long I want you to do it. <laughs> Isaiah's like, I thought we were headed for success. And it's sure. like, no, you're headed for faithfulness. Wow. And that's what, and I, I think of you guys with missionaries, I mean, honestly, we love to tell stories of the success stories of missions, but we know everybody who's had any touch with missions, you meet these people who've been working in an area for 45 years, they've had one convert, he was baptized, he ended up getting sent to prison, and the church never flourished sure. in that area. Yeah, yeah. What do you want to say about that? I want to say, well, they're they're faithful. Yeah. Um, that's what I want to say. And I, 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 it's wonderful when faithfulness meets the blessing of God. Hmm. It's not uncommon for that to happen. But I just want to say those are two really different things. And, hmm. and our job is to handle the faithfulness part. God's job is to decide when, where, and how the blessing will, will come. Yeah. And we just have to say, it's fine if you say like with Jeremiah, I wish I was born at a different time. Wow. Yeah, go for it, Jeremiah. That's fine. <laughs> if you're if you're writing a journal, you want to press, sing us a few praise songs that are sort of mournful about this whole gift. But the bottom line is tomorrow morning I want you to get up and be faithful. Nah. So good word. Good word. Yeah, good that's word. that's the deal. I think it's kind of a big deal for us. Again, back to American culture. We really do like success. And that's sure. the waters we swim in. And that's what we have to sell when we write a prayer letter. Right. Um, we feel like that at yeah. the very least. And so this is a real problem. Um, yeah. and, and I, and I mean it sincerely. I, I, I don't want to mock the, the difficulty that's represented in those words, but I do want to point out that that is very much a biblical expectation. It might not be a thing any of us would desire, yeah. but you just need to walk into a life of ministry, separating faithfulness from success. Wow. That's a good word and a challenging, challenging word. 
One of the other things you brought up in the book was that the followers need to develop the habit of speaking up and um, and holding leaders accountable. Do you have any practical um, ideas on how we can develop this way of, of, of speaking up and then holding leaders accountable? Yeah. So whenever you're in that moment, you want to remember you're basically talking about a moment where things are not going according to God's design. So at that point, it isn't so much at all bets are off or, oh, no, abandon hope ye who enter here kind of a thing, but rather to just say, OK, there's probably better and worse ways to handle this. There's probably no perfect way to do this. And at some point, you have to make some kind of difficult calls and so the the thing i'd say at the beginning is when you just first see that just kind of raise the question most immediately up the chain of command or sometimes you can even do this sideways where your first thing just to validate your perception hmm. and we sometimes confuse that with gossip it you know I, I if you can just make it an exercise thing did i see that right or do i under am i missing something hmm you know, that can be a helpful thing because sometimes the answer to the question, you really are. I know you yeah. think this is this way, but I sure don't see it this way. And I was in the same meeting. Yeah. So there's some of those things that are actually helpful to talk about because otherwise you talk to yourself about it <laughs> and you get yourself talking and you are absolutely convinced that this was exactly what the person <laughs> said. And that's what they meant. And that's, and you're like, just a little bit of check and balance would have made you say, oh, I didn't hear that part. Or I, that's right. I stepped out of the meeting because my dog was barking. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Those things happen, you know, <laughs> and you come back in and, you know, so just this, a little bit of kind of humility about have I accurately perceived things and you can yeah. validate that either upward or sideways, just depending upon so much about your own attitude with doing this. Sure. If you begin to realize, oh, no, this is a reality then you do want to be careful of of doing gossip rather than meaningful intervention. Hmm. So that's when you begin to say, okay, this is a real issue. Let me move up to my immediate report, you know, follow the chain of command. Cause like I say, it's a chain of following. Yeah. And so what you want to do is just talk to the person you're following most directly and say, look, I'm being asked to do this. This seems really problematic hmm. um, and see what happens. Hmm. And don't assume that because you mentioned it once, it automatically gets right. What you're really worried about is a situation where things have kind of gone wrong. So you're going to have to have a certain amount of perseverance with this. Hmm. And usually there's mechanisms for appeal that if your immediate boss doesn't respond, there's a proper and an improper way to. So I'm I'm saying kind of work the the course of, court of appeal. Yeah. But the other thing that you do need to realize at some point that you don't want to be the person who just goes along with everything and then one day is standing in the ashes of the organization. Wow. And I think of things like with, you know, in recent years, right. you know, Ravi Zacharias is a guy that I respected sure. enormously. We, we had him here at Biola several times and, and he, I, and I would still say, I think he did a, a ton of wonderful things. He had sure. a bunch of wonderful qualities, but there was some really dark stuff there that had come out enough that the organization should have known they mm. refuse to do their job with this. And I've, you know, yeah. you look at some of the documents that came out and there were people who spoke up and did what they needed to do. Yeah. Boards didn't listen. And I think that's one of those things that I think is sad and tragic. But if you're in that situation, the thing I, I say, you need to speak, you need to be one of the people who actually speaks out. Yeah. And sometimes that may make you say that, oh, if this is what's happened, I may need to leave the organization 
And all I want to do is say that's kind of built into the followership thing. When we talk about mission ownership, back to my example, is this guy trying to take me scuba diving when I was planning on climbing the highest mountain in Africa? Yeah. I'm like, uh, we, we got a problem here. Sure. And if you thought you were coming to an organization that would honor biblical teaching and they're actually being okay with sex abuse with kids sure. or uh, embezzling funds or, you know, all these other things that go on, you say, you know, that's not really compatible. Yeah. with a biblical mission. And yeah. so I, I'm going to raise the issue. I'm going to speak up. At some point, if we just keep doing this, I'm going to have to find a different place to yeah. serve. So that and goes, that, you know, yeah, for sure. So that idea of deference and submission, it's not blind deference and not blind submission. You got your, it. And that comes back to your your very great point there, that followership is active. It's not just passively, but we submit and we definitely defer but we're also, you know, we're giving, as you said, we're giving feedback and walking in those tensions and the responsibilities uh, of speaking up um, specifically. Yeah. In those times, any question you wrote the book and you're the one that has done all the research, <laughs> anything that you think, Hey, that, that would have been valuable to talk about, or this kind of a, uh, some thoughts you would like to share that I didn't, that I didn't highlight in our, in our time together. Well, just two things I mentioned briefly. One is the, I think it's chapter seven, uh, where there's a whole bunch of things that we call soul rhythms. This is Joanne's uh, terminology, and she wrote a lot of that section because she's really good with these kind of things. But the thing I want to underscore about this is that we're saying followership kind of is a thing, not a yeah. nothing. Right. And it's a hard thing, and it's a noble calling, and it's a, a shaping your soul kind of calling. It is hmm. a big part of how we become the people God would have us be. So that whole chapter of the book is really a series of kind of devotional exercises okay. to help you shape your soul in more follower-conducive patterns yeah. you know cultivating sensitive sensitive to the spirit sensitive to the word of god um just a whole bunch of things but kind of a joanne's great with uh kind of this when she goes to the grocery store she goes to the grocery store with a question lord what do you want me to do here who do you want mm -hmm. me to talk to and, and i'll confess we're all glad joanne wrote most of that chapter because <laughs> i wouldn't have had all of those times i go to the grocery store to buy the bananas you know yeah, there, gotcha. there you go so yeah. she's really good with that and i would kind of underscore uh yeah. the value of that that wasn't written as a tag on hmm. that was written because we're really serious about how demanding followership hmm. is and you have to decide this is the thing i want to cultivate a soul that is followership compatible so to speak wow, wow that's good um and the only other thing i'd mentioned we didn't talk about this but it's the story we tell in the book about um you know nicholas herman when we meet him turns out that he is his uh, brother lawrence the person who wrote uh practicing the presence of god which has been hmm. this you know incredible devotional classic but the interesting thing about him was not we, people think about him as a monk and it's like, guys, he worked in a monastery, yeah. but he was the cook. Hmm. It's like being a janitor in a hospital yeah. or something like that, where it's like, okay, he, he did work in the hospital, but don't confuse him with the heart surgeon. His job <laughs> was not transparently devotional, spiritual life connected the whole time. I mean, yeah. he, he entered as a lay brother in the kitchen. He died as a lay brother in the kitchen. And in that entire time, he never wrote a book. He died having, if you ask him, I was going, Brother Lawrence, what do you do? He would say, I'm the kitchen servant. Hmm. I'm the cook. And by the way, he wasn't that great a cook. 
it, it by his <laughs> self-report. I mean, I don't have any complaints from, there weren't any ratings on the Amazon, you know, feedback mechanism for the monastery, but his self-report was, I'm not great that great at this job, yeah. but he was great at presencing God in the middle of his job. And, and he wow. was so good at it that the other monks noticed, other people noticed, people would ask him questions, he'd write letters, he'd talk to people. And after he died, people compiled his things into this short little devotional class that's hmm. gone through, I think, almost 500 editions now, translations wow. into almost 100 languages, and it's never been out of print in 400 years. And it is a guy who's actually written the book. I would love for one of my books. I would love for all my books combined to have that track record, right? Right. And so he had this incredible impact, but he never saw it. He lived his entire life as a quintessential follower in the kitchen, simply making most of the moments that God gave him. Hmm. And that to me is just a, a stellar example of why we're not just saying followership is only an excuse to holding pattern or training for leadership. I'm saying, look, Sometimes it's that, and it's great actually for that. Sure. I, I don't want to disparage that part of it, but there's the people like the brother Lawrence who spend their life is in the mm. most literal sense as a follower mm. and have an incredible impact for 400 years after they've died yeah. on the devotional life of people all around the world. That's good. And I'm like, guys, we need to own the yeah. ordinary tasks of followership much more deeply than we tend to. Wow. Rick, it's been an honor and a pleasure to, to learn to learn from you. And uh, yeah, just to spend some time together this evening. You pray for us that God will, yeah, whatever direction you would like to pray for us. I'd love to. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you have called us to be followers. I thank you that even as we think of leadership, we, we think of being leaders as Christians as if we're basically yoked to you. And the yoke that you give us is an easy yoke, a, a light burden, exactly because we're attached to you. And even when we lead, we lead as followers. And when we follow, we follow through the energy and with the zeal that you give us on the mission that you've called us to. So, Lord, I pray you just give us hearts to cultivate the followership aspects of all of our lives. And at the same time, Lord, I do pray that the, the flip side of this is that we generate an authentic appreciation for the leadership you have given us, be it in the form of other people that we follow or be it in the form of the situations where we are called to lead. I pray that we would be able to treasure and value both leadership and followership, and as a result, that work together in ways that lead us to really advance your mission kind of open open up our context to the work of your spirit in the time and place of your place, that your will might truly be done in our generation. So Lord, that's, that's our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.